and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring a little more love, a little more courage and joy into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Elaine, one of your hosts, and I have missed you. I'm so glad to be joining you for today's episode. And I wonder, when was a time when you experienced awe? One of those times when you felt yourself in the presence of something so vast, so amazing, that you found yourself both feeling it and witnessing it, but also just, it just totally surpassed your capacity to comprehend or grasp it. When I search for my own experiences of awe, the births of my children come to mind, just the experience of meeting these tiny breathing and actually crying and very, very real little humans who were not with us until suddenly they were. It was just so amazing how they joined us. Or I think of hiking and hiking and hiking and then coming into a clearing to discover a pristine aqua-colored alpine lake. Or feeling awe simply on a day-to-day basis right now, witnessing my garden bear fruit this summer and experience the amazement of these big plants that came from tiny seeds and now they're producing food for our family. Awe. Awe is such a fundamental part of the human experience and of the religious experience. But there's something else that is way on the other side of the spectrum, that is also a fundamental part of the human experience and the religious experience. And that is the problem of suffering. In a world that brings us awe-filled moments where we might find ourselves thinking, surely there must be a God. There are also these moments of suffering where we cry out, why me? How could there possibly be a God when things like this can happen in the world? Reverend Gretchen holds together these two realities with lots of heart and with a deep dive and sometimes surprising dive into the story of Job in today's episode. And this episode continues our series exploring concepts of God and questions of ultimate meaning. I am so glad you're here. Let's dive in. You may know late night host and comedian Stephen Colbert. He was raised Catholic as one of 11 children. When he was 10 years old, Stephen Colbert's father and his two younger brothers were tragically killed in a plane crash, leaving him alone with his mother as his older siblings by then were all grown and moved out. In 2019, When journalist Anderson Cooper's mother died, Colbert reached out to him with a note about finding peace in grief. Cooper had also known grief at a young age. His father also died when he was a boy, and then his brother shortly after that took his own life. So after Colbert reached out to Anderson Cooper, the two sat down for a remarkable conversation about grief and about something that Colbert had said in an interview with GQ a few years before. So we're going to hear just a few minutes of this interview now. 
You told an interviewer uh, that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Um, I remember you went on. You went on to say, uh, "What what punishments of God are not gifts?" Do you really believe that? Yes. It's a gift to exist. It's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. And I guess I'm either a Catholic or a Buddhist when I say those <laughs> things, because I've heard those from, from both traditions. But I didn't learn it that I was grateful for the thing I most wish hadn't happened, is that I realized it. Mm -hmm. Is that... And it's a it's an odd, oddly guilty feeling. It, it doesn't mean you. I don't are want. Happy I don't want it to have happened. I want it to not have happened. Right. But if you are grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, um, <laughs> yeah. not everybody is, right. and not, I'm not always. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the most positive thing to do. Then you have to be grateful for all of it. It's, you can't pick mm. and choose what you're grateful for, and. Then, so what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss. Well, that's true. Empathy. Which allows you to connect with that other person. Right. Which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being, if it's true that all humans suffer. Right. And so, at a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or with my children, is that I have some understanding that everybody is suffering and however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them in a deep way that not only accepts that all of us suffer, but also then makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people. And that's, that's what I mean. It's, it's about the fullness of your humanity. Mm -hmm. What's the point of being here and being human if you can't be the most human you can be? I'm not saying best. Because you're going to be a bad person and a mm. most human. I want to be the most human I can be. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things that I wish didn't happen. Because they gave me a gift. I was thinking as I watched it, we probably should have had it play twice. I, um, I myself watched it about, uh, I don't know, 22 times or something. Uh, I really encourage you to check out the whole interview. There's at least a 20-minute clip on YouTube you can find that is just rich with um, that sort of uh, complex insight and wisdom. So for a long time, Job agreed with Stephen Colbert. You know Job, right? The one whose life was the epitome of hashtag blessed. <laughs> that is, until Job lost everything, all his money, all his land, all 10 of his children, even his own wealth, even his own health. By the end of it, he's covered in welts, Every part of his body is in pain. They describe the color of his, uh, of his skin. It's like had turned charred black. Yeah, that's the state he is in. He is devastated. And still the story goes, through it all, Job is 
faithful. Not just faithful, actually, he is blameless, which means he's done nothing to deserve this kind of punishment. Nothing could make this pain make sense. Even Job's wife literally tells him to just give in and curse God and die. <laughs> literally, that's what she says. Why don't you just curse God and die already? In response to her obvious logic, Job says to his wife, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? What punishments of God are not gifts? This is Job's mindset when three of his friends come to visit him. They'd heard about his trouble. As soon as they see him, they feel so overwhelmed by what they can see is his, his obvious loss of everything, that the way his life has taken this turn, they tear their clothes and start weeping. And then they sit down with him immediately, and they spend seven days and seven nights in silence just bearing witness to all that has happened. It is an incredible example of friendship and support, something we can all take as a lesson. It is, in turn, quickly followed by exactly the opposite. Job's faithfulness inevitably transforms to lament and justifiably anger at God. And Job's friends, well, their compassion transforms to accusation as they try to shake out what it is that Job must have done to deserve all of this suffering. The story of Job is like the story of refugees at war, starving children or the young person consumed by cancer before life has had time to take hold. I mean, we don't like to tell these sorts of stories. We don't like to hear these sorts of stories because we want to believe that these stories could not be true like Job's friends. We must, we believe there must be a reason. It must not be that 10-year-old Stephen Colbert would lose his father and his brothers all at once for nothing. It must not be that any of the tragedies we find in today's headlines across the globe, that these things would just happen. There must be some explanation, some way we could stop it a way to make sure that that bad thing won't happen to us. We long for the world to be fair in some deeply personal sense. It's one of the motivations, I think, behind much of the modern wellness movements. Like if we can just find that right vitamin cocktail Avoid sugar, definitely artificial sweeteners, especially after that recent study, and set our intentions just all to the good. If we can just think right, then we can bring the good, we can bring the right, avoid the bad. The wellness movement probably wouldn't think of itself as a theodicy, 
but it fits right in with the other ways that humans have tried over the ages to understand why bad things happen, to give a reason when there seems to be none. As a religious scholar and writer Kate Bowler puts it, the Odyssey is the human habit of continually asking, why is this suffering happening? What does it mean? And where is God in this? Bowler comes at this question first from an academic perspective. She uh, studied first what's known as the prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard of it. It's that way of conceiving of God as the one who will bless you in direct proportion to the strength of your belief. And that the luxuries of life are, as Bowler says, a reward for your faith. She went into her study, she acknowledges, with a lot of judgment, as perhaps many of us might have. For this flagrant embrace of wealth justified by way of a savior who regularly identifies with and glorifies the poor. But what she finds in her study, in the details of this prosperity gospel, is less judgment and more understanding, even identification. As she writes, the prosperity gospel encourages people to buy private jets and multi-million dollar homes as evidence of God's love. But it also offers people an escape, an escape from poverty, failing health, and the feeling that their lives are leaky buckets. Some people she studied wanted Bentleys, but more wanted relief from the wounds of their past and the pain of their present. People wanted salvation from bleak medical diagnoses. They wanted to see God rescue their broken teenagers or their misfiring marriages. They wanted a modicum of power over the things that had ripped their lives apart at the seams. And these feelings, she realized, were not foreign to her just as they aren't foreign to most of us. If we're honest, we all hold at least a little of the ideas of the prosperity gospel within us, as it is a deeply American way of approaching life. You know, it is that promise that you could curate your own life, minimize your losses, stand on your own success, and then from there, she goes on to describe the way that her life had followed this kind of pattern. According to this reliable logic, she says, I was married in my 20s, a baby in my 30s. I won a job at my alma mater straight out of graduate school. I felt breathless with possibilities, a certainty that God had a worthy plan of my life in which every setback would actually turn into a step forward. It was all going like this, Bowler says, when she was 35 and she was suddenly diagnosed with stage four cancer and just a few months to live. 
And now, as she writes, she doesn't believe in any of this anymore. Now, Bowler grew up with a traditional understanding of God. That is the one where God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everywhere. You know, it's what some call the omni-omni God, right? Um, see if we can do it. Omniscient, omnipresent, and the last one, omnipotent. All-powerful. Theodicy is an especially vexing problem for the omni-omni God, especially when you also want to claim that that God is all-loving. Because how can an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everywhere God, who is also all-loving, allow for evil Either God must not have the power to prevent suffering, or God has the power and chooses not to use it, which means unless you connect pain with love, God must not be all loving. Theology is often an act of deciding which trade-off you can live with, which God feels more worthy of your devotion, all-powerful, or all loving. Process theologians, that way of conceiving of God that Sean explored a few weeks ago with improv exercises, they prioritize the love over the power. They concede some of the power in lieu of the love. They say God is that which lures and persuades creation but does not have power over. It's power with. Classical Christian theologians avoid the question altogether, of course, by instead turning their attention to human beings. To paraphrase Taylor Swift, hi, we're the problem, it's us. At least a few of you got the reference. In this way of thinking, it isn't that God doesn't have the power to stop evil, it's that God loves us so much that God maintains our human free will. And humans, sinful worms that we are, keep choosing bad and causing bad. Sometimes this is a generic assessment, like humanity is the source of evil generally, and so there are bad things generally. Sometimes it's more specific, like you do bad things, you get bad things. In popular culture today, we often think of this personalized consequence as karma. But karma is actually better understood as something accumulated across multiple lifetimes, more than it is about your own bad behavior coming back to haunt you. It's simpler and more accurate to say that what we're looking for is just the simple law of cause and effect, and wanting that to apply to our moral lives. It's why the idea of heaven and hell can be so compelling, right? Even if we don't see that reward and punishment happening in life, we want to believe it will happen someday. So now, despite his friend's insistence, Job is not worried about any of this personalized cause and effect because he knows he's blameless. He says it over and over. And that God has brought to him, what brought, God has brought to him is not, it could not be because of something he did. There must be, 
he says, some greater purpose that he can't see. This is another way, of course, that people approach theodicy to say that God isn't just not stopping suffering, but actually enacting it, all as a part of some greater good that God has in mind. This is, of course, as most post-Holocaust theologians have said, obscene. Full stop. Which I hope you will remember and repeat the next time somebody tries to justify something horrible by saying it's all part of God's plan. Now, according to the text, Job's suffering is not actually from God, or at least not directly. It's I don't know, you can decide if it's better or worse. It's the result of a bet that God is making with someone called the Satan, which is not yet the same figure that would evolve and emerge in Jewish and Christian traditions that we know of as the devil or Satan. The story of Job, if you didn't know, it's ancient. It's maybe up to 3,000 years old, and it's written by multiple authors stitched together over time, often badly. In this text and across other parts of the Hebrew Bible, the Satan is one of the members of the divine court, and his duties seem to be mostly roaming the earth and spying on humans and then reporting back to God. Now, sometimes it turns out the Satan fails to find things that are interesting enough to report back to God, and so he becomes a sort of trickster or provocateur to stir up trouble, as he does in this story. This is another way to approach the Odyssey, to say that suffering, our suffering, is the fault of a third party, not God, not human. It comes from the Satan, or by the trickster gods of ancient Greece, or some other third party out there that you might come up with. But even then, you have to concede that something, something of God's power or God's goodness, either God, is again, is not able to stop the third party or doesn't care to. It's the latter we find at the start of Job. After God brags to the Satan about how much Job loves him, the Satan tells God that Job only loves him because he's been so well-blessed in his life. He says, if his life was not so great, Job would not love you nearly as much. And so this is where the wager comes in. God gives the Satan full permission to torture Job and see if Job loves him anyway, which for the most part, Job does. This section of the text gives us a God that is cruel, uncaring, even if he is not directly responsible for Job's pain. This is not an all-loving God. God here, like in many other places in the Hebrew Bible, is more interested in being loved than loving now, mostly, mostly this is a way of thinking about God that we, Unitarian Universalists, we tend to reject with disgust or eye rolls or with residual injuries carried from a time of attempting to please such a God or really please people who believe that this is who God is. And still, 
Like Kate Bowler with the prosperity gospel, sometimes I wonder if there's also something here we can understand and even identify with because sometimes it does feel like life makes just as much sense as a wager between two clueless celestial beings with overblown egos wondering if they are loved for real. One of the ways that I like to think about the Hebrew Bible is as a series of attempts by people to describe their experience of reality not truth like the same way that science is true, but more true like as in, I feel that. And here in this first section of Job, we find a God I have felt. An impetuous God who could care less about my good work or anyone else's. A neglectful God who lets some roaming trickster spy run things every once in a while. A vain God who forgets the suffering of God's people for hundreds of years or more. Job starts here in its portrayal of God, but it doesn't stay here. Remember, multiple authors and a story stitched badly together. So after Job's friends put him on trial for what they are sure must be some hidden sin... And after Job has offered every defense and repeatedly pled his innocence, after Job has screamed at God, and after he has surrendered to the silence that greets his pleas, when all that is left of Job is his grief. In the final pages, God speaks. Not with an apology or even an explanation. Tell me, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you commanded the mornings since your days began and caused dawn to know its place? On and on, God goes on questioning Job like this, as if cataloging the places of awe. Those places where God holds knowledge, power, the places across all of the earth, across all of life, living, dead, not yet born, and then across the cosmos, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, across all the universe, across all of time. God in this portrayal is a force impersonal, mysterious, not absent from our lives exactly. This is a creating God after all. A God who makes and unmakes life and, crucially, a God who holds it all, all at once. So much complexity and dynamism, a complexity we can never fully understand, complexity we probably don't even want to. What suffering means within any one life cannot be fully squared with this complex force of reality, of everything that is and ever was and will be. 
nor can all, any one life's blessings. This is not a God of the prosperity gospel, and it definitely does not say we should be glad for terrible things because they are part of God's plan. For in this God, there is no attempt to make sense of any of those specificities, the good, the bad, the single life story. For as much as we might imagine ourselves at the center of it all, or believe that our pain or our blessings must make sense or fit into a clear cause and effect, this the Odyssey responds instead by reminding us that sometimes the mystery is just a mystery. And to us, most everything is a mystery. What punishments of God are not gifts? This isn't the answer that Job or his friends or most of us hope for when we go to make sense of suffering. And yet I also believe that this wisdom can be a gift, maybe even a relief, a way of thinking about human life and our place in it all that can be in its honesty a comfort. As Wiccan healer Sadie Whip reminds us, there are things that happen that will never make sense and will never be a thing we find peace with and will always haunt us. There are some things that are so incomprehensible, so wrong, so brutal, so beyond our ability to deal with that we should not try to deal with it. That's not because there's something wrong with us. It's just because sometimes life is just beyond our ability to hold or tolerate. And just as much, there are some things that are so incomprehensible because they are so right, so beautiful, so miraculous that they are beyond our ability to hold them either. We are overcome and this beauty, this, this brutality, none of it makes sense exactly. None of it can be held in a single rational container of cause and effect. None of it is earned. It can only be received as a part of this great mystery where we stand in awe and turn it all into gratitude and compassion remembering the ways that this mystery is all of our fate and knowing that it is all, as Colbert say, says, a gift. May it be so. And amen. Hey, listener, it's Elaine again. Uh, what a beautiful message Gretchen offered us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gretchen. As we wrap up this deeper pod time together, let's just take a moment and return to the part of Anderson Cooper's interview with Stephen Colbert, where he makes this beautiful link that I just have not been able to let go of. I've been holding it close. He makes the link between loss and connection. And he shows us that suffering is what opens our heart to others. It's what opens our heart to a deeper connection and to empathy. And this is what makes the gift clear. So as we move through the rest of our day-to-day -day and move through the days to come, 
Let us meet each other's suffering and our own suffering like Job's friends do when they first see him, bearing witness to the brutality and also to the beauty, holding each other through it all in love. Thank you so much for making time to join this week's episode of the Foothills Deeper Pod. If you have a moment, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people discover the show when they're typing keywords into Google, trying to find just the right something that might touch their lives in a meaningful way or help them get inspired. And if there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions we're wrestling with over here, please send them a link to the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so grateful you joined us. Thank you.